text today is our epistle reading from Galatians chapter 2. I have to confess that I'm a bit of a novice or maybe a Johnny-come-lately when it comes to a deep knowledge and a rich understanding of the feasts of the church. See, I grew up in a low, cor- low church corner of the LCMS that dutifully counted Sundays after Pentecost, but just as dutifully ignored All Saints Day and every other Saints Day along with it. But I'm learning. And I can actually tell you now without looking that September 29th is St. Michael and All Angels Day. And December 26th is not Gift Return Day. It's actually the Feast of St. Stephen. I know it. But that's about it. And so when the chapel schedule said Beerman on June 29th, and then further noted that this date is the Feast of Saints Peter and Paul, my first penetrating theological thought was, huh, how about that? And my second penetrating theological thought was something like, huh, that's weird. Why would the two top-tier apostles have to share a day? I mean, even Barnabas gets a whole day all to himself. Doesn't make sense. But I suppose that these things just sort of happen somewhere in the vagaries of the church history without a lot of careful planning, and so we're kind of stuck with it. So, for whatever the reason, the day actually does have a wonderful, powerful, melodic sound to it. The feast of saints, Peter and Paul, go good together. Better yet, the shared festival day forces upon us an important lesson about what it means to be a follower of Christ and a servant in the church. It's good to remember that although both saints were singular and remarkable individuals, each with a strong and forceful personality in his own right, they were nevertheless still just fellow servants working together in the church of Christ. And that's the picture we get in the readings assigned for today. From Acts 15, we heard about how Peter and Paul actually collaborated and worked together at the famous Jerusalem Council. Both argued for a gospel that did not come via circumcision, Sabbath, and kosher regulations. Together, Peter and Paul helped to shape the infant church's right understanding of the gospel of Christ. Together, they saw that the church's mission would be accomplished. And the text, then, that comes next from Galatians reiterates the same message. Paul recounts from his own memory the spread of the gospel to the Gentiles and notes that it was Cephas, Peter himself, who had endorsed his mission to the Gentile world. Recognizing the grace that had been given to me, James and Cephas and John gave to me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship so that we might go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. They only asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. And that's how it is. The two greatest apostles, Peter and Paul, side by side, together, working for Christ's church, together, in their goals and their purposes, together in their mission. It's a beautiful picture. Perfect for a shared festival day. It's encouraging. It's it's nice. Maybe, Maybe a tad too nice. Actually, it's just a bit too convenient, maybe, that the epistle reading 
just ends at verse 10. Just happened that way, right? But you push one verse further into Galatians 2, 11, and the sweet sentiment is suddenly shattered. But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. Yikes. You remember the story. Peter got caught doing a little two-faced hypocrisy thing when some hardliners from Jerusalem showed up and made him rethink his open-minded attitude toward those Gentile believers. Peter was in the wrong, and, well, Paul let him have it. The sweet togetherness of Jerusalem evaporated in Antioch. Here it was harsh confrontation. But I suppose that's no surprise. We've come to expect that sort of thing from St. Paul. The defender of truth, the advocate of the gospel, Paul's not going to let anyone mess up the wonder of grace unearned and forgiveness undeserved. Salvation by grace through faith in Christ alone. Paul will fight anyone who gets in the way of that, even another apostle, even Peter. And thanks in no small part to the teaching and practice of our own namesake, we Lutherans have long cherished such fearless and fierce defense of the gospel. When the gospel is at stake, nothing, nothing gets in the way. Not popes, not peace, not friendship, not fellowship. No price is too great. That's true. And Paul certainly knew that and exemplified it. And Peter certainly learned it. Peter, who had been given the keys, found himself receiving the keys And that makes us think that perhaps there's another truth at work here. Maybe Paul was not just defending the doctrine of the gospel, but also taking very seriously, painfully seriously, one of the central teachings of the one who had delivered the gospel. Perhaps the truth is that Paul did what he did simply because he and Peter were together in that gospel. Maybe it was precisely for the sake of fellowship and peace and unity. Maybe it was just because he was bound to Peter that Paul had to confront his brother to his face. Not only a passionate defense of the gospel, but also an impassioned attempt to retrieve a falling, floundering brother. When you're stuck together in the gospel, you get stuck doing that kind of thing for each other. And one brother's weakness and sin means another brother's anguish and sorrow at having no choice but to risk a confrontation face-to-face. It's no easy thing. But there is no choice. Fellowship is on the line. A brother is in peril of his life, of his eternal life. Indeed, in Peter and Paul, we see what it costs to be together in the gospel. We see what it means to be church, to be given the keys. It's obvious enough, and I suppose safe enough, to make contemporary applications to our own synod's habits. It would be good, we realize, for those who write and those who read and those who talk and those who listen about the burning topics in our church to remember 
that defense of the gospel as points of doctrine is not all that there is. There's also the defense of the gospel that means the face-to-face appeal to a brother who has chosen a path apparently at odds with that fellowship, at odds with the Lord, at odds with the gospel. For his sake, for his sake, sin must be confronted and unity restored. We dare not forget the person. But we dare not forget the greater and more serious application that is much more personal, ridiculously and uncomfortably personal. Together, Peter and Paul remind you what you owe your brother, your brother next to you. A brother who is caving in, perhaps, to the temptation of sin. That brother is your responsibility. A brother being deluded by falsehood, yielding to ungodly pressure, choosing an action that denies the gospel, is not to be ignored or tolerated or understood. He is to be confronted to his face. His action is threatening fellowship. His action is threatening his life. It's threatening the church's life. You can't ignore him. When your brother denies the gospel with his actions, you must confront him. You must confront his shameful internet habits, his tendency to lose control when he's drinking, his harsh ridicule of others, his corner cutting that is really cheating, his unteachable pride, his self-confident criticism of all who disagree with him, his love for gossip, his dismissal and disregard of fellow believers. It's sin. It's not to be tolerated with the hope that it'll get better by itself. It's not to be discussed with someone else or left for someone else to deal with, not to be explained away or become a cause for your own indignant self-righteousness. It's to be confronted to his face, by you, by your face. That's the cost of being together. It's a high price, but incalculably worth it. Confrontation, repentance, forgiveness, restoration, together. That's how it works. It was some time, we're told, around 258 A.D. The Valerian persecution was increasing in intensity and the faithful in Rome were concerned. Perhaps the enemies of the gospel would dishonor their saints by desecrating their tombs. And so Peter and Paul, at least what was left of their physical selves, were moved and hidden together. It happened, of course, on June 29th. When the persecution passed, the bones went home, returned to their own places to continue waiting. But for the, for the church, for us, Peter and Paul stayed together to share a feast day forever on the day of the translation of their relics. The price of the painful Antioch confrontation pales by comparison to such an enduring fellowship of Peter and Paul. It was worth it. But far better than even a shared feast on the calendar of the church was the regular feast that Peter and Paul celebrated together 
after the breach of sin had been healed, together at the Lord's table, together in the body and the blood. And how sweet will be the feast yet to be shared by the greatest of the apostles when the dry, dry bones kept safe from pagan persecutors will be together again, fully human, body and soul, and seated together at the eschatological banquet table of our Lord, a shared feast indeed. A feast with a seat and a place card also for you and for your brother. And so it will be, Peter and Paul, you and your brother, you and me, face to face forever. Amen.